You're listening to the Kane and Cup podcast. Hi, it's Glenn Beck, and I want to thank you for supporting The Blaze. Because of your phone calls and emails, The Blaze has been added by many TV providers. But we can't stop now. The big media companies like DirecTV, Comcast, and Time Warner aren't listening. They think CNN, MSNBC, and Al Jazeera America are all you need. But we humbly disagree, and we think you do too. Visit GetTheBlaze.com and let your TV provider know that you want The Blaze in your home. GetTheBlaze.com. Thanks. Will Kane, S.E. Cup, R. Kane and Cup, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Good morning, good Saturday morning to you. This is Kane and Cup. I am CNN contributor, co-host of Real News on the Blaze, Will Kane, and I'm alone. Literally, I would say 15 seconds before we went on air, S.E. says. We got time, right? I'm gonna go make a. I'm gonna go make a tea. So, welcome to Kane. No cup. At least for the next couple minutes. We do have a good show. I am excited about the show today. We should uh, a little later in the show have a debate on whether or not college athletes should be paid. The National Labor Relations Board has certified the Northwestern University football team that they can unionize. They can become employees of the university. We're gonna ask Dante Stallworth, former. NFL NFL wide receiver, uh, played at University of Tennessee, the New Orleans Saints, the Cleveland Browns. What he thinks about that. Welcome to the show, Essie. Oh, oh, hi. I'm glad you could join us. I had to go get some iced tea. Yeah, I hope it's good. Well, I can't, I can't function without iced tea. Uh, <laughs> we're also going to be asking some tough ethical questions. What is the line on selling merchandise of uh, history's mass murderers? Like, uh, I don't know. Um, Hitler's trinkets. He's the worst. He is the worst. He'd be up there. <laughs> so uh, is there like an ethical dilemma here on selling his hat for profit? If not, then where is the line? I want to know. Uh, but in this hour, this is the topic we want to start with. <clears throat> Should we be drug testing welfare recipients? Should, in order for welfare recipients to receive your hard work, your hard-earned tax dollars, have to pass a pee test mm. to show they're not smoking weed, snorting coke, shooting heroin, whatever. Yeah, using our money to buy illicit substances. Right. And and not, not just using our money, but denying their kids maybe resources that they need because they're spending money on drugs and alcohol. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think you're probably with me, Will, and probably with a lot of our listeners, in, in feeling like... Uh, vast welfare programs probably don't serve our communities maybe the way they're intended to. Um, I I think either by by accident or sometimes by design, they lock people in to government dependence. And it makes it almost impossible for people to get off government dependence, which should be the goal to begin with. You know, I'm a compassionate person. I believe in a social safety net, but I don't believe in a hammock. And I think when you consider the kinds of welfare programs that a lot of Democrats like to suggest will be will be salves for poverty or income inequality, 
I think it's only right the conservatives try to tinker with those programs and figure out ways to make them more effective. Right. All under the premise, which you alluded to, the welfare is designed to be a hand up, not a handout. Right. It's designed to help you get out of the situation that you're in. The presumption being no one wants to be on welfare. Right. right? And no one and no one understood that better than Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton's welfare reform of the 90s, which no Democrat could ever do today because to even talk about welfare reform is racist. Did you know that? It's no, racist. It is. Oh. Hashtag racist. I'm going to start a list. You should. Uh, so so that's that's exactly right. I mean, welfare should be a road to getting off welfare. But isn't then the question, if someone is using drugs, they're not looking for the hand up. They're looking for the handout. They're not trying to get themselves out of the situation they're in. They are resigning themselves to staying in the status of a welfare recipient. So then why yeah. should we therefore subsidize that decision to remain static? Yeah, they're taking advantage of the welfare system. And welfare abuse is uh, it's not uncommon. It is a problem. Um, and conservatives, I think, rightly try to deal with it. Right. And I'm going to say this. I know you have you're, you're about to make the oh, but argument here. But I want to say this because we're, we're going to get a lot of feedback on Twitter. I already have. I know you wrote a column in the, in the New York Daily News about this. I'm sure you received a lot of feedback. Mm -hmm. In fact, I want to invite all of our listeners to call in and informally and, and debate you. I mean, after yeah, they might this, disagree with me once I once I you know, tell people what I feel about it. They might, our yeah. listeners might disagree. That's true. Um, I think the, the number one response I've seen is this, Essie. If I have to have a drug test to be employed, yeah. you should have to have a drug test to remain unemployed. If I have to have a drug test to pay for the gravy train, you should have to be drug tested to ride the gravy train. Right. I hear that all the time. And, and I think before I thought about this topic, I would have absolutely said, yes, of course. Of course you should be drug tested. But uh, last week, Mississippi became one of a number of states to approve this idea of drug testing for federal assistance. And what 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 their program is, it passed the House, passed the Senate. Uh, Governor Bryant signed it into legislation last week. What their program is, is you have to fill out a questionnaire and the questionnaire is meant to red flag certain answers that suggest that you might be drug dependent. So it's designed to sort of, um, you know, probe into your personal life and figure out whether you may be drug dependent. If those red flags are set off in this questionnaire, then you are sent to take a drug test. If you fail the drug test, you don't get welfare benefits, I think, for like 90 days, and then you have to come back and try again. Um, and it passed. Like I said, it's passed in a number of other states, and it's up for legislation in a number of other states. It's also um, failed the scrutiny of a number of federal courts, right? Uh, because there are a lot of questions about who you can drug test, whether this is an invasion of privacy, whether this fails on the Fourth Amendment, uh, whether states can have um, autonomy over federal money, uh, how, how that all works out. Which leads me to my problem with this, my problem with drug testing welfare recipients. And I have a number of problems. But the first is, this is inefficient government at its worst. Explain. Well, uh, for one, all of those lawsuits are proof that clearly there are so many questions with the constitutionality 
of drug testing welfare recipients that court after court and a lawsuit after lawsuit has tried to wrestle with this question of whether or not this is legal. And that kind of expensive litigation, uh, I think, is strike one against welfare, welfare, uh, drug testing for welfare recipients. Strike one. Strike one. That so many people have problems with the constitutionality, the legality, Fourth Amendment issues, uh, whether it's discriminatory, and it certainly seems like it is, and a number of judges agree, that equating poverty with criminality certainly seems discriminatory. For example, if accepting federal money is the trigger here, right, that's the trigger for getting a drug test. Well, why not drug test everyone that receives federal money, whether it's for a college loan, a federal grant, opening a small business, buying a home, working on Wall Street? I mean, if you are receiving federal funds and millions of people do in some way or another – why not drug test them? You're going to get some cocaine test positives on Wall Street. No kidding. <laughs> and if you really want to make a tenuous argument, you say, did that connect to the ultimate necessity for bailouts? Well, well, all the tooting in the bathroom. <laughs> the tooting? <laughs> I'm not familiar with the, the slang. <laughs> I wouldn't know. Uh, uh, but there is tooting in bathrooms, I'll give you. But there, that, that does take place. Um, I'll take your word for it. But let me let me say this. Um, I liked that argument. You and I have had this debate earlier this week. I, I like the inconsistency argument that welfare is not the only place that the federal government provides handouts to people, whether or not that's college grants, college loans, Wall Street bailouts. There are many Home classes loans, of people right. who receive government benefits. Why are they all not then drug tested? And I think yes. the answer, though, after having found that initially a very compelling um inconsistency Uh is this it's where we started is that welfare is not a place that anyone acknowledges you want to end up or stay neither the state uh nor the recipient seemingly wants to be in that position right no one wants you to remain in welfare we want to provide you a hand up into another status into a more productive more a happier status for you in your life. But it's now, no uh, different in any other walk of life. No, you but, receive a college loan, and the goal is to pay it off. No one wants to be dependent on the government forever. You receive a home loan. You the goal is to pay it off. But you're not in an you're not in a discouraged state. The college grant, the college loan, is not something we're saying as society. No, we we this is a problem. We we can't have you remaining in this status, right? Uh, all of the other federal government payouts are almost like a. They're, they're benefits. They're, 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 they're extra. I'm not saying it's not better to have a college degree than not mm. to have a college degree, but certainly welfare is something we're saying we've got to get you out of this situation, and we need you to be a willing participant. It's different. Well, than- I get the impulse. I really do understand the impulse. Um, however, that discriminatory aspect is not, uh, is not my only concern. I've got a number of other arguments uh, and and strikes against drug testing for welfare. And, and we'll get to more of that when we come back. This is Kane and Cup. Stay with us. All right. This is Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network.
you're too logical and not fanatical enough. You're the Neil deGrasse Tyson of the conservative world. I'm black. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome back to Kane and Cup. Last weekend, there was a St. Patrick's Day party. A blaze St. Patrick's Day party. Allegedly. I happened to grab a few feed uh, comments and feedback on the the potential of a Kane and Cup radio show. And this, by the way, this is genius of you. This reveals your dark, demonic genius that you would go to a St. Patrick's Day work party, work party, where you know your colleagues are drunk and have them talk about us on tape. My only regret is I didn't get them to talk about more things, theories on where the Malaysian Airlines plane is. What they think about drug testing welfare recipients. Deepest, darkest secrets. <laughs> That's what we're talking about in this half hour. Yeah, I, we're talking about about the idea of drug testing welfare recipients. And apparently a lot of states thought this was a good idea. Republicans constantly bring this up for legislation. Republicans are constantly saying this is a way to fix welfare and end welfare abuse. I've got issues with it. Strike one, as we mentioned, uh, it doesn't seem constitutional it seems discriminatory for for all of the reasons that we said if you're going to drug test this group of people because they receive federal money why not other groups of people who receive federal money i also mentioned i think it's inefficient government it's also big government i mean this is more bureaucracy on top of bureaucracy it's something that conservatives should feel really weird about government bureaucrats giving us questionnaires about what we do with our private lives um, yes, there's an ask there because you're, you're asking for federal money. And so maybe, maybe we, we have the right to ask a few questions about how you're going to spend it. Yeah. You opt into welfare. It's a voluntary take, right? So you can put conditions. It's a voluntary that- take, but let's also stop being theoretical conservatives and live in the real world. Yes. It's optional. If you have three children and you're starving and you can't get a job, it doesn't feel very optional. It feels like something you have to do. All the more reason that if you're in that situation that you shouldn't be doing drugs. Don't disagree with you. Don't disagree with you. This is not the answer. I'll move on. We've got we've got a couple strikes on the board. I'll move on. This doesn't make a whole lot of fiscal sense. It doesn't save all that much money. And in fact, um, legislators in Mississippi suggest that if everyone who filled out a questionnaire and applied for welfare in their state tested positive for drugs... It would cost nearly $300,000 to the state in fees for drug testing. So, I mean, unless we're saving a ton of money and my goal as a conservative is fiscal responsibility, this doesn't pass that test either for me. Okay. Moving on. And this is my list. I'm making a list here. I'm going to start checking your boxes. Good. And I want people, I mean, if you disagree with me, and believe me, I, I understand the conservative opinion on this. If you disagree with me, I want you to call in. It's 888-900-3393 or tweet us at SE Cup or at Will Kane. My next problem with this is my biggest problem with this. It is a non-solution to a very real problem. Meaning it does not work. Yeah, it does not work. Um, Scenario. You go in to a Mississippi federal assistance office, you uh, fill out the questionnaire, it's red flagged, you are drug tested, you fail a drug test. You're sent out on the street, broke and drug addicted. How does this program solve 
for poverty or drug addiction. It doesn't. It sends a broke and drug addicted person who's probably desperate back into the community, feeling as though he or she has nowhere else to go. Now, I don't like the decision that that person made to become a drug addict. I don't agree with that decision. And I don't agree with enabling that decision. However, this does not solve for any of the problems that welfare or this welfare fix are supposed to solve. Yeah, I disagree with you on that one. Because what you've done is you've rejected the concept that tough love has any potential positive effects. You punish your child. Some of us put them in timeout. Some of us have not yet subscribed to the notion that spanking is child abuse. Whatever whatever it is, the tough love is designed to correct behavior. Not receiving your welfare check because you received a positive drug test is the tough love. Assuming next time you won't come in with traces of marijuana in your urine. Oh, I, I only wish that that were the case. That all it took was failing a drug test and not receiving food stamps for, for a month was all it took to get people off drugs. Let's live in the real world and not, you know, theoretical, high-minded, you know, sort of ivory tower kind of world and and deal with the reality. People come in, they fail drug tests, they go back on the street, they keep doing drugs. This does not change that behavior. I find this the weakest of your arguments. I think (laughs) I do. I'm sorry. (laughs) I think tough love works, and I think that's the real world. Well, it doesn't work. I mean, this isn't solving. And I know it works. No, but it doesn't work in this situation. I mean, we have we have science, we have data. (laughs) Hashtag science. Oh, science's over. Debate. You just invoke science. Well, no, we have data on how the these programs don't work in various states. In Utah, for example, twelve people were denied welfare assistance. But see, now you've changed the argument, and I think it's and I think this one is more. No, the argument was always it doesn't work. No, it doesn't catch. First of all, there is conflicting data on whether or not welfare recipients use substances at any greater rate than the rest of the population. Some right. suggest it's in the 20 to 30 percent range, which would be higher. Others suggest, no, it's much more in line with the general population. Therefore, if you're drug testing welfare recipients, as in Utah, and catching only 12 people, or in other states, only 2 percent of the welfare recipients are testing yeah. positive for drugs, yeah. you're not really catching anybody. Yeah. So it's ineffective. I buy that argument. Um my final argument sure. is that um, conservatives should be finding ways to reform welfare to make it leaner and more efficient instead of adding bureaucracy on top of it. Okay. Conservatives should not be uh, – essentially what we're doing here is accepting welfare as it exists, accepting the welfare state as it exists, and then tacking on this totally unenforceable, unworkable, illogical, unconservative, unconstitutional addendum – to welfare, to make it even more bureaucratic. Okay, I'm going to add one more reason to your list when you left off, but I know you have talked about it in the past, is why would you stop at drug abuse? The slippery slope argument. That's if right. you're suggesting drug abuse is standing in the way of someone getting off of welfare, well, what about alcohol? Or for that matter, junk food? Or anything else that right. society Cigarettes. is on its way to demonizing and, legal, and, and making illegal? I'm just going to grade you real quick. Uh <laughs> Whether or not testing welfare is discriminatory versus other federal payouts, I'm a little bit in the middle on that one. So you didn't sway me completely. I, I think there's a justification for that discriminatory effect. Discrimination in and of itself is not a problem. Without a justification, it is. 
There's an inherent tension with the Fourth Amendment search and seizure. I grant you that premise. The bureaucracy and cost sways me a little bit in your way, but not heavily. Does it work? No. And that sways me more heavily in your favor. The slippery slope. I think. And I'm there with you. I'm not. I do not think this is something current service should put their weight behind. I think grading me is douchey. That's what I think. I think when we come back, I'm going to tell you a story that should make you puke with laughter. (laughs) How how does one puke with laughter? Just wait. And Etsy Cup, Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Kane and Cup, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. We have unwritten, unwritten laws in the society. If I'm talking to somebody and they said their their friend has cancer, I go, oh, oh, oh. You know, even though I don't know the person, I go, oh, you know, that's a, it's an unwritten law. You, you do something like that. <laughs> <laughs> that's good stuff. I'd like to reveal that during the break, Will Kane was performing a kind of weird dance. It was an exercise meant to, I think, psych yourself up. Yeah. Were you psyching yourself up for you know radio? What? Now you put it that way, it reminds me of, uh, you know, have you heard Matthew McConaughey do this ridiculous thing he talks about that motivates himself where he beats his chest? He goes, uh, 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 uh ah. That's, that sounds right. He does it in Wolf of Wall Street as well. He turns it oh. into his character in Wolf of Wall Street. He says it's just a thing to get him pumped up. So, yeah, I've got mine too. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of what it sounded like. Woo! All right, unwritten rules. You heard Larry David there from Curb Your Enthusiasm. There are laws in our society, and that's kind of the theme of the show today. There are several different topics we're touching on that illustrate or reveal or put into question certain unwritten laws, rules that we abide by. Should we or should we not drug test welfare recipients? Should we or shouldn't we not pay college athletes, uh, sell mass murder memorabilia, and on and on. All of life's interesting questions. I've got one for you as well. I'm going to talk to you about a few unwritten rules that I exposed, revealed, and made uncomfortable last weekend after our show. So, you know, having lived in New York City for quite some time, there are rules in how you conduct yourself in public spaces in New York City. Yes. For example, the subway. Generally, you get onto the subway. You don't make much eye contact. You don't talk to each other. If you do, you mumble. Everyone carries themselves with a general disdain for humanity. In fact, if someone talks to me on the subway, I will cut you. (laughs) I will report you to the police and cut you. And everybody understands this. (laughs) Yes. And we all get along just fine because we understand these unwritten rules. Can I offer another unwritten rule? Sure. Of life in New York City? When it's raining, you don't carry a golf umbrella. That's correct. Because the sidewalks are narrow and you just might get cut. I might cut you if you're carrying a golf umbrella on the streets during a rainstorm in New York City. Now. You inject certain free radicals into the system that do not behave by these unwritten rules, and you will see New York City do very weird things. So, for example, you put a drunk on the subway train on St. Patrick's Day, and he starts talking loud and using cuss words. (laughs) And what happens is everybody else on the train starts making eye contact where they wouldn't have. And now we're bonding, and we're looking at each other going, Now we're a community. What's wrong with this guy? (laughs) Right. Should I do something? You want to do something? What's going on here? But no one's talking. We're just doing this all with our eyes. Another free radical, in addition to drunks, are children. 
because children do not understand these unwritten rules. And sometimes they're drunk. <laughs> they do not behave. They do not uh, mind their personal space. They throw their legs up on the subway, up on someone else's lap. They sometimes lean their heads on someone's shoulder, random people. They talk to people? They talk to people. <laughs> and no one knows what to do. So last weekend, I take both of my children on the subway to Brooklyn, which is a long haul from the Upper West Side of Manhattan where I live. And I'm with a friend of mine and his children. And we go to Brooklyn. We do our thing. It's largely a bust. And we decide, let's go back to the Upper West Side. We get on the train. And I'm standing on the train. Now, the trains on the weekend are very crowded, a lot of people, because there's fewer trains that run, so it's shoulder to shoulder. Now, I'm standing, and from left to right is my three-year-old, in the middle, my six-year-old, and on the right of my six-year-old is one of my friend's children. Now, my three-year-old says to me, Daddy, I want to drink a water, so I give him a water bottle. He takes a drink of water. He passes it to his brother, the six-year-old, who takes a drink of water, who passes it to the neighbor's children, and... They take a drink of water. I'd say this about, sounds really unsanitary. Yeah, oh, there's snot coming out of the nose, going into the water bottle. An adult would never participate in any type Barf. of interaction like this. Yeah. So I'd say about two or three minutes pass, and I, uh, I, I hear, Bleh! and I'm telling you, 1980s style movie, Stand By Me style, my child vomits. Like projectile across, vomit? Projectile vomits across the train. <gasps> now, on the first heave... No one really notices. Right? They probably just thought he was drunk. They've got their back to him. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you do as a parent? You, you do not yet have children, but I'm going to answer this for you. You catch it. You reach what? down no, with you your don't. hand to catch it. But no. the problem is, Essie, no. your hand no. creates a geyser effect. Oh my God. Now, on the second go, vomit sprays upward and sideways, and bodies are flying everywhere on the train now. You now are kidding me. people know. Oh now they're diving for the corners of the train. And my kid keeps going, man. He's got <laughs> so much vomit. It is on the floor of the train. It's on the bench. It's one of those benches that runs constant. So it, 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 it created a river down oh the bench. My God. <laughs> By the way, one, one guy just loved his seat so much that I looked up halfway into this deal, and he'd taken a napkin and just create a little dam <laughs> so he could save his seat. Well, when you get a subway seat on a long train from Brooklyn, you keep it. Yeah, vomit or no vomit. So now there's a blast radius. And I, me and my six-year-old are the only people in the blast radius. By the way, my three-year-old, I heard him crying. I looked at him, covered in vomit. Head <laughs> because that's the dramatic. That's the direction my six-year-old sprayed. So now there is – I have a huge range of open territory around me, okay, with no one around me and my child who are standing amidst – a, a, a blast of vomit. Now, New York City responds as it does. Irritation, disgust, the eyes looking at me, the the anger, how dare you foul this train. And by the way, the train is foul. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard over. to foul it up, yeah. People are getting off at every stop. People running to get on all of a sudden stop because they see the floor and they back away. That's right, right, right. But then you see the shift. And this is what was fascinating. It slowly changed. One person kind of stepped into the blast race and handed me a napkin. Oh, thank you, oh. thank you. And then the next realized, that's not good enough. I've got a better napkin. And oh. they brought me a napkin. Oh. And then someone handed me a bag. Too that's late. the weirdest part of your story, that Too- New York came together for you. <laughs> and then they upgraded my bag. Oh, and wow. slowly you saw humanity change. Wow. And the unwritten rules change. And it all culminated in the end with this old Asian guy came up to me and he goes, <laughs> trust me, now I am in this. This is I've had to ride the train. I'm going to ride it home. What are we going to do? Get off? Uh, he came up to me and goes, uh, you know, this just happens. This is Aww, it happens. that's so, nice. I would have cut your child. <laughs> I would have cut your child. 
The subway smells bad as it is. I can't imagine the smell after your child upchucked, projectile upchucked all over. All over the two train. (laughs) You have bad luck with your kids on the subway from Brooklyn. Did something else happen? Yeah, there was a bathroom incident, I remember. Oh, there was. You're right. I forgot about that one. I think you should avoid avoid going to Brooklyn on the train with your kids. Maybe that's a story for another time. Solution. We're going to take a break because when we come back, we have a story about – did you guys see this? Anybody at home? Uh, NASCAR legend? Oh, for sure. Michael Waltrip. Oh, for sure. Now doing some camera work, some media work, carrying a microphone around. Yeah, for a while. He's been doing this. He's been doing this. Yeah. He He does like a pre-race thing at every track. Kind of made a mistake. He made a mistake. I think it's a mistake other people have made too, but we'll find out in the next uh, segment of Kane Cup. Stay with us. This is Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Listening to Kane and Cup. Hey, welcome back to Kane and Cup. Um, has this ever happened to you, where you're you're a hundred percent certain that you recognize someone, and maybe that someone is a friend or someone you know, or or a famous person, and then you go up to that person and you are one hundred percent certain it's that person. I don't think it has, and then I it's not that person. I, off the top of my head, I can't think. That I've done that. Well, it happens. It's happened to me, in fact. And it's real. It's embarrassing. But uh, it happened to my friend last weekend. Um, you, you might know uh, NASCAR. You, you refer to him as NASCAR legend. Correct. And I would totally agree. NASCAR legend Michael Waltrip, uh, the number 55. He's a uh, he's great guy. You see him pre-race. He does a lot of broadcasting now. And he'll go around and he'll do a grid walk on the track and uh, talk to folks. People like to give him a kiss. Um, Michael Waltrip is adorbs. He's adorbs. Anyway, he thought he saw Donna Summer at a race. And, uh, well, let's play it. Let's play what happened. You gotta come to Hollywood and stick with the Biff. Biff, have you seen any stars? Oh, we're close to Hollywood. I did. I saw that big guy from Modern Family. I think his name's Eric. Oh, that's cool. Have a, have a good day today. I think I see Donna Summer. Last dance. Last chance for love. <laughs> Hi, Donna. How are you? How are you? Uh, enjoy the races today. I love your music. you got a great body of work. That you put together. You know, the problem I think I know the problem. (laughs) Do you know the problem? Well, it's not just a case of mistaken identity. (laughs) It's not simply a case of mistaken identity. Not only wasn't it Donna Summer, um, Donna Summer's dead. She's dead. May she rest. (laughs) Uh, You know what? I think we have Michael Waltrip on the phone. Michael, are you there? I'm good. How are y'all? Michael! Well, thanks for calling in. I mean, tell us what what the thought process was. You think you see Donna Summer, so of course... You're going to say hi to Donna Summer if you see her. Well, it was um, a little more complicated than that. I actually um, was was interviewing Biffle and needed to get down the pit lane a, a, a bit to the next guy I was going to talk to, who was Austin Dillon. And I saw a sweet-looking lady that I knew was not Donna Summer, but huh. she looked close enough to her that I wanted to have fun. And so um, I, I asked her if she was a Donna Summer fan, and she said, yes, I always loved Donna Summer. And so that's what led to um, me 
Um, did I know that wasn't Donna Summer? Yes. Was I 100% aware at the time that Miss Summer was no longer with us? <laughs> no. Um, but, uh, we appreciate your huge, honesty. <laughs> I am a huge fan of, of her. And, when, you know, when I was a kid in high school, she was, uh, she was one of my favorite artists. And so the lady that I interviewed, when, when it was all said and done, I said, thank you. And she said, um, I, she said, you know, Miss, Miss Summer died. And I like, Oh man, I, yeah, I, I, I guess I guess I guess I knew that you grieved but, all over again. Yeah, I was like, I I uh, that would have been handy if you'd have told me before. I <laughs> but um, I honestly, you know, I mean, obviously <laughs> knew it wasn't Donna Summer. Well, um, Michael, but, you I mean, you meet a lot of celebrities, um, you know, through your job and at the track. Who's who's the the favorite? Who? And, and a real living person, a real living celebrity. Who's your favorite? Well, on the grid walk at Daytona, I met 50 Cent, and he said he'd give me a kiss if I won. What? I thought, thought that was kind of special. I've never that, been kissed by a rapper before. Did it happen? I didn't win. Damn. Aww. That's what I said. Damn. Too bad. Uh, there's there's always fun people at the races. I'm uh, I'm good friends with Vince Neil, and he was, he was at um, Vegas, and... Ron White, the comedian, he, he comes to a race every now and then. And so there's always fun people on the grid. And uh, getting to, to walk on the grid and talk to the drivers is something that people seem to enjoy. And so my job is to make it fun. And Oh, and, and you do. You're so good at it. And I, 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 I missed on that one. I missed <laughs> that one detail on that. And I'm... Well, Michael, I mean, I'm going to bail you out here. I got to be honest. Before this radio segment, I don't think I knew that Donna Summer was dead. But uh, so outside of the resurrection of Donna Summer, which would be a huge surprise, Fifty Cent's a pretty big surprise to see at a NASCAR race. I assume as some kind of a fan, who's the who's the biggest surprise for you? You gave us some some, some of the biggest names, but like, who are you? Wow, so and so is a big NASCAR fan. Did not know that. Um, Carrot Top. Um, <laughs> they they watch the races pretty regularly and and loves nascar and i went to see his show and he's got a couple of cool nascar bits i'm guessing he's a bush fan uh, um vegas i'm just guessing there's there's two bushes in the race tomorrow here in martinsville by the way barf a pair of them so i'm watching my driver clint boyer do something with um with TV right now, and he seems to be doing push-ups, which is interesting. It's rainy in Martinsville, and we're getting ready to have our final practice session, so oh, good. we can't practice in the rain. Yeah, these boys are trying to pass a little bit of time. There's a lot of a lot of fun things when you come to the races. Essie, you, you're a fan, you know. Yeah. And, um, I I just enjoy enlightening people on our sport, and hmm. and I try to keep it fun and interview lively people. Oh uh, well, you're the best, and thanks. Thanks for calling in, Michael, and uh, and going over that that story with us. It's a great story, and I love what you do. I'm a huge NASCAR fan, as you know, and we love the the color that you add to to all of the races. So thanks, buddy. <laughs> all right, I appreciate you having me, and y'all have a great day, and keep a, keep it real up there in NYC. All right, thanks, Michael. Thank you. So I mean, I will. I mean, this has happened to me before. I actually thought I ran into Tom Calicchio. He's the like celebrity chef from Top Chef. Okay, don't know who that is. It, well, he's like the bald celebrity chef. He runs a bunch of restaurants in New York. Um, Kraft is one. Colicchio and Sons is one. He's got a bunch of restaurants in Vegas, whatever. I, he's on Top Chef. All right. And I, I swore it was him. And I walked up to this guy, and I was like, Tom, I love your restaurants. I'm 
dying to go to craft. He had absolutely no idea what I was talking about. I was like, this is definitely not Tom Colicchio. <laughs> and then um, about a year later, I ended up doing Bill Maher with Tom Colicchio. And I told him this story. And he was like, oh, my God, I've never been, like, celebrity mistaken before. It happens. I- Does anybody mistake you for anyone else? Uh, no. Yeah. You want to know what I get most often? What? Joel Osteen. What? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that's good. Is that good? No. I agree with you. I mean, you. I like Joel Osteen, it's but like that's good. not a good I'm not um, doppelganger. I'm not pleased with it. No, that's weird. <laughs> I don't get any doppelgangers, but uh, I love that Michael, uh, not only, not only. That's cool. Michael Walker. Found a celebrity that wasn't a celebrity. He found a dead celebrity. <laughs> 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 love Michael Waltrip. I hope everyone watches the race tomorrow. Okay. We'll be back uh, soon. And um, what do you want to talk about next? When Hitler? Can- yeah, let's talk about Hitler. <laughs> let's talk about Hitler. <laughs> Because why not? <laughs> What's the over-under? What's the price on Hitler? Is it an ethical price? 888-900-3393. Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Kane and Cup. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Will Kane S.E. Cup R. Kane and Cup. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Kane and Cup. I am Will Kane. I'm Essie Cup. We are both Blaze, Real News, CNN contributors. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah, resumes are merging. <laughs> um, in the last hour, we talked about the calisthenics I was doing during the break. Right? I was doing a little. You were like psyching uh, yourself up. Woo! Yeah. I. Don't, what was? John, you do we have do low we, energy? We don't have it. I, I was going to illustrate for you exactly uh, what I'm talking about. What? It wasn't Ric Flair. That was Will Kane. <laughs> <laughs> um, coming up in this hour, we're going to talk about... We're going to have a little Essie's confession a little later. She wants you to confess something to her. Yeah, I, I want you to tell me your deepest, darkest secret. Or maybe just share something embarrassing that you'd be too ashamed to tell someone else. But totally just tell me. Because I don't judge. I'm not judgy. And I'll love you anyway. <laughs> so call in 888-900-3393 later in this segment. Later in the in this hour, we're going we're gonna to get to your confessions. I hope they're juicy. And later in the show, we're going to have a debate about whether or not college athletes should be paid separately, whether or not they should be able to unionize. Uh, we're hoping to have a former college athlete call in. We'll see. Oh, I think he will. We have? You think he will? I mean, when I ask my friends to do me favors. God, here we go, big time. <laughs> I asked Michael Waltrip to call in. He did. And he did. I asked Dante Stallworth to call in. I believe he will. I believe he will. You Dante know what? Stallworth. People are good to me. Dante Stallworth, <laughs> former University of Tennessee wide receiver, former New Orleans Saints wide receiver, former Cleveland Browns wide receiver. Patriots, Redskins. We'll have him come in and tell us what he thinks about college athletes being paid. My calisthenics. It has an inspiration. Can I tell you, it, it felt a little somewhere. Jerry Maguire. It felt a little Jerry Maguire. You're close, but you're no cigar. Hmm. It's rather more 
Wolf of Wall Street. Come on. Wow. Wow, that was intense. Man, the funny thing is I've heard Matthew McConaughey give interviews. That's not acting. Like, he really does that. And he does it, and they said, hey, do that. Do that in the scene. Do it with your character. I've heard him on NPR. Well, that's not acting, then. That's just being a weird person, and someone wants to put that on screen. I'm going to tell you something. Matthew McConaughey has made the biggest turn in in any actor's career that I have witnessed over the last 30 years. Not just has he proven himself to be an awesome actor, but charming, endearing. Oscar winning, family man, God lover. I mean, he really became kind of an interesting person, right? Instead right. of just the like, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> Instead of that guy, right. he's like an interesting, talented person. All right. So this is what we want to talk about right now. Is there a so line? So now to Hitler. <laughs> now to, let's turn to Hitler if we, if we might. Uh, I do have a question. I'm genuinely curious in your response, SC, in the audience's response. Let's set a line. Can we? What is the ethical line on trading merchandise of mass murderers? Um, where is it? Uh, is a Hitler hat okay? What about uh, what about a gas chamber? What about uh, an axe used in an axe murder? I mean, seriously, where is the line? Because it's got to be nuanced, I would assume. Let me well, tell you the story that I'm talking about. Craig Gottlieb is a guy here in the United States. He collects World War II uh, memorabilia. Specifically, he has amassed a collection of Nazi propag- Nazi uh, memorabilia. Not only that, he has Hitler memorabilia. He has a, a 1930s vintage Nazi party brown shirt. He has a Nazi political visor, one of those high hats with the short brim. He has a, a blood order medal and a small collection of other implements that came from Hitler's Munich apartment when American soldiers went in in 1945. Is he like into it or is he just a, a history buff? Well, I mean, you're at, you're drawing a line right there already. I'm just so curious. If you're a generalized history buff, that's one thing. But if you're really into a specific category, like, I mean, he's not a Nazi. Okay. He's not he's not a, a neo-Nazi okay. uh, skinhead. He's a he's a history buff collector. OK, continue. And he paid over a million dollars for these items and he wants to now sell them and he wants to sell them. For roughly $3.5 million. Now, mm-hmm. there doesn't seem to be any controversy whatsoever in the fact that he's collected these items, that he's preserved them. There actually doesn't seem to be much controversy in the fact that he wants to sell them either. But the controversy has found its way into the story because he wants to make money off of these items. He wants to profit from what he's already paid for. And there are those from the Simon Wiesenthal Center or the Anti-Defamation League who are saying, you are profiting off of hist- one of history's greatest atrocities off the murder of millions you stand to make millions of dollars do you have to pay to get into the anne frank museum Ooh, interesting question i'm sure you're curious do. i'm just curious i know you don't in the holocaust museum because smithsonian museums are free but i'm just wondering i'm just throwing that question out there my guess is you have to pay but it's probably set up as a non-profit maybe yep um and is that the line then is it you know you it's just profit is what's wrong in this scenario i personally think here's my take on this the debate is almost for naught. Craig Gottlieb's um, rationale is he says history needs to be preserved. Right. Physical history needs to be preserved. You need to be able to hold history. It's how we, it's how we remember. It's how we place ourselves back in those situations. It's literally in your hands 
And that's important. So why does he want to sell it? That's valuable. Uh-huh. I, I agree with him. Why does he want to sell it then? I don't know. Maybe he thinks it's time for this to move on. Maybe he wants to make money off it. Mm-hmm. Let's grant that mm-hmm. possibility. But if we're going to say it's important to preserve these items yeah. and they have value, you almost can't separate profit from value. Mm-hmm. Prices will fluctuate. Prices will go up. Prices will go down based upon interest. By the way, World War II apparently is very popular right now. We've had a, a slew of movies come out um, since 2000. From 2000 to 2009, 27 movies about World War II grossed over $700 million. Sure. World War II is hot. Yeah, greatest generation. Yep. So if these things are going to have value, how are you going to take the concept of profit out of it? It's what? going to be there. Yeah, I don't I, – I really I, – honestly, I don't understand the controversy. I mean from a macro level, history is important. From a macro level, capitalism is good. From a macro level, of course you're going to pro- – look – Pablo Picasso wasn't a great guy. Pablo Picasso might not have been a really good person. Pablo Picasso might have been an adulterer and kind of a jerk. People profit off his work all the time. So um, from a macro level, I don't understand. From a micro level, however, and you would know better than I do, don't we have laws against profiting off of crimes? We're not talking mass murders, but like... Like, uh, you, you know, you, you get sent away for, for murdering your wife. You can't write a book and profit off of it. Correct. So what does Somebody that... else can. Someone so, else can. So by that, that application, that rationale, I like where you're taking this. Hitler can't make money off of his own memorabilia. Yeah. I know he's long gone like Donna Summer. But <laughs> he... Allegedly. Can't, should he still be among us, go around selling his merchandise. Yeah. So look, by the way. Ebay's, Sotheby's, Bonhams, auction houses mm-hmm. will not sell Nazi memorabilia. They you know, will. They have a ban on it. In fact, I think it's illegal in France and Germany to sell Nazi memorabilia. And a, a good proxy, by the way, if you weren't trying to sort yourself through this debate, is if France and Germany think one thing, do the opposite. <laughs> right. That's always the good the good rule. But again, I mean, uh, there are plenty of German artists who were Nazi sympathizers, and their work gets sold, their work gets published. Well, but there's a difference between Wagner that. Didn't, Wagner didn't end up in the, in the bowels of history. People still listen to Wagner, and he was not a good guy. But there's a difference between Wagner being a sympathizer and Hitler being the decision maker. But course. that's the line. And honestly, I'm genuinely curious what the line is, because if yeah. you and I agree that this is, this is, this is okay— and it may be not even a point of okay. It is. It just is. But where is the line? I mean, Lee Harvey Oswald's gun. Um, I, I I know this is insensitive. I know, but that's the whole point, right? Is, well, it is. What about the I electric mean, chair used to kill people? What about the gas chambers that were once constructed in Germany? Someone collected, I don't know, tiles or memorabilia from that place. There, it's kind of like, where does the line exist then? No, I, I, you're right. It's insensitive. In some ways, it's macabre and kind of grotesque and obscene. But uh, I think I think that's the question. Where is the line? I'm also curious as to why Pol Pot doesn't ever get any love. <laughs> why is it always Why is it always Hitler? Yeah, Stalin, I think, doesn't get credit for how bad he was either. There I mean, he gets truly, credit, but Hitler some, sucks up all the air in the you're, room. You're right. I mean, it's like Hitler, Hitler, Hitler. I mean, there, there are tr- some truly terrible people. In, in history, I don't think anyone's rushing to sell Pol Pot's scarf if he wore scarves. The market's not, the market's not there. <laughs>
Um, all right, 888-900-3393. I genuinely am curious about where you think that line exists. Tweet me at Will Kane. Tweet SE at SE. Yeah, I'm looking uh, at Twitter. People seem to agree with you. It's uh, one of those unwritten laws that yeah. I'm talking about. Today. And, they, and they think there's a sense of history, and history is valuable, even if you disagree with that history. Right. The, in the end, the analysis may be this. The, the analysis may be one of my favorite movies. It was provided in The Big Lebowski, um, where Walter and the dude are sitting in their car, and they're having a wonderfully bickering argument and walter says am i wrong am i wrong am i wrong and the dude finally says no walter you're not wrong oh that just happened please stay tuned to kane and cub <laughs> please don't leave us we'll be back after this will kane and se cub will continue in a moment on the blaze radio network Changed there, and I went and I couldn't wear underwear. I don't think I can tell this story. Well, on you, TV. now you told it. Well, I let's let's just say everyone went scrambling for a razor. Hmm. There was Gwyneth Paltrow oversharing as she tends to do. Um, hmm. People have very strong feelings about Gwyneth Paltrow, and I think it's because she's a pretty pretentious person. Um, she has a lifestyle website called Goop. What's that mean? I don't know. Um, it's not an attractive word. It, yeah, it, it is not not a good word. Um, but on it, she waxes poetic about things like Turkish bath towels that cost four hundred dollars and trips to the Hamptons and her celebrity friends. And it's it's or- a fairly gross ordinary things. Yeah, it's really it's really gross. And she's constantly getting in trouble for saying really ridiculous, over the top, pretentious things. Just recently, in fact, like a couple days ago. She uh she got in trouble for saying this. She said, I think it's different when you have an office job because it's routine and, you know, you can do all this stuff in the morning and you come home in the evening. And when you're shooting a movie, they're like, we need you to go to Wisconsin for two weeks. And then you work 14 hours a day. And that part of it is very difficult. I think to have a regular job and be a mom is not as, of course, there are challenges, but it's not like being on set. Yeah. Yeah. Being um, ordinary is so easy. Yeah, being ordinary and and um, you know, not wealthy is just easy. It's hard to be it's famous. famous. I, I have some other I, I compiled some other classics, some other classic Gwyneths. Uh one is I'd rather die than let my kid eat cup of soup. Is that something is that a product you own? I don't know cup of soup. Cup of soup is like um like ready made soup. Like you add water and it's it's instant soup. Oh, okay. People she who work want well, apple. you wouldn't know this well because you don't have a regular job. But people who work <laughs> regular jobs take cup of soup to lunch and well, they make it for lunch. I mean, to be fair, when Gwyneth and I were She'd hanging out die. at the Hamptons last weekend, drying off in our Turkish towels, <laughs> we mentioned cup of soup. What is that? Is that like is that like Se's personal product? She'd rather die. Um, she also said, "I'd rather smoke crack." Then eat cheese from a tin. 
Do you know what that is? Cheese from a tin? No. <laughs> well, we're just discovering that Will is also not a normal person. <laughs> <laughs> she also said, uh, beauty fades. I just turned 29, so I probably don't have that many good years left in me. There's something else. There's, it's not just in the literal examples you're giving us of why people are turned off by Gwyneth Paltrow. So it's the same thing with Anne Hathaway. Anne Hathaway Ugh, is... Don't get me started. I know. Don't get me started. I'm with you, sister. I cannot stand her. <laughs> but you're not alone. Anne Hathaway is the most um, disliked. I, hate is a bad... Hate, I don't like that word. What, for what reason do you have to hate Anne Hathaway? But she is the most... Oh, she's so cloying and... Oh, that's a good word. Yes. Yes. You don't like her face. Yeah. Don't like her face. And your face, your face, your face bothers me. And Gwyneth in that, in that, in that same category. <laughs> um, but she also made some news because recently, uh, this week or last week, she announced that she and her husband, Chris Martin, from the band Coldplay, remember that band? Sure. That used to be a band. Yeah. <laughs> I think they still make music. Um, they are separating, but they didn't use the word divorce or even separating. They said instead, we've decided to consciously uncouple. Now, this sent people into a huge tizzy. I mean, what does that mean? Is this more pretension? Why don't they just say what they mean? Um, is that Hollywood speak? Is that new age stuff? Just admit it. You're getting a divorce. And you saw the the pile on 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 Gwyneth and Chris, um, you know, uh, continue. And I again, I think it's because people already don't like her and they think she's very pretentious and, you know, unrelatable. And so so you saw that sort of glee in her in her demise. And then there was that confusion over conscious uncoupling. What does that mean? But I got to be honest. Mm -hmm. It made me like her. Conscious uncoupling made it you did. like her. This moment in Gwyneth's life, and not because of schadenfreude, this made me like her, and I'll tell you why. And I think it's actually very good news. It was a refreshing thing to see. This is a couple who, by their own accounts, have worked very, very hard on their marriage, often admitting, like she tends to do, overshare, that it's been hard. They've had hard times. They've gone to therapy. They've d done counseling. It hasn't been easy. They've worked really hard to stay married and they've gone out of their way to keep stories of their marital woes uh, out of the press. Uh, famously, Gwyneth tried to get her friends to boycott Vanity Fair, which was going to publish a big expose about how their marriage was really kind of crumbling and coming to an end. Um, and, and as I mentioned, they, you know, they are using this term consciously uncouple as opposed to the D word. And I think it's really refreshing to see a Hollywood couple ashamed of getting divorced, sad that their marriage is coming to an end, um, proud of being married and not wanting to see that go go away. I, I think Hollywood divorces are so uneventful that had these two decided we're going to get divorced, no one would have batted an eye. No one would have stopped seeing her movies if she still makes them or stopped buying his music if he still makes music. No one would care. In fact, some of the topest, top grossing actors in Hollywood have been divorced multiple times with a lot of press, sometimes very nasty divorces. No one cares anymore, which is sad commentary, but true. 
The fact that these two were so reluctant to throw in the towel, as opposed to other Hollywood couples that virtually celebrate their emancipation from marriage, regardless of their kids, or get married for 72 days and film it for a reality television show and then get married to someone else and then have a baby out of wedlock. I mean, those are the stories. It's really rare that you hear a Hollywood couple less than giddy to call it quits. I get it. I get your argument. I like it. I mean, I like that there is shame yeah. in the concept of of getting a divorce. That they don't want to own that concept. They're ashamed of it. Yeah, isn't that but isn't that inspiring kind of refreshing? It is refreshing is the word, not inspiring because yeah, they didn't change the fact. You're still getting a divorce whether or not you want to call it conscious uncoupling yeah. or divorce, the facts are still the same. Yeah. Well, Apple, that's sad though. Apple and Moses. Moses. Their parents children. are still splitting up. You know, and that's sad, but that happens. It does happen. You're right. I mean, You're I'm right. a child of, of divorce, and, and that happens, and I'm, I'm glad my mom divorced my dad and, and remarried my, my dad, essentially, a, another guy who's, right. who became my dad. Right. Thank, I am so grateful for that. Divorce happens. The facts, I like the shame in that. Facts are still the same. The shame is the a good thing. The attitude is, is yeah. different. Yeah, I liked it. All right, when we come back... We still have Essie's confessional. 888-900-3393. Tell me your deepest, darkest secrets. And we're talking about where the Republican National Convention should hold their every four-year convention. Kane and Cup. You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Shocking is what I have to say about it. It's shocking. They let you do that? We have a, we have a radio show for right now. <laughs> for right now. Maybe not for long. Or as uh, Jonas Miller 76 says, tune in next week on Twitter. He says, tune in next weekend to Kane and Cup when it will be just Essie Cup due to Will Kane's potty mouth. Well, yeah, I know not to swear on, on air. I'm sorry. That's okay. I'm sorry. Hey, However, th- I do want to point happen. out, as Mike says on Twitter, it's okay for Essie Cup to threaten to cut a kid for an involuntary function, but Will, can't, Will Kane can't curse. Bizarro world. Okay. Uh, let's, we'll just, let's, just, let's just move on. I think, um, you know, what's, what's interesting, I can't, I can't even collect my thoughts after this. Um, let's talk about I where we are. That's his name. I, I, just, stop, I just, stop talking. Stop talking. Stop okay. talking. Stop talking. I'm saving you from yourself. Stop talking. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> That's like a, that literally is like a Simpsons thing that just happened to me. Yeah, I, let's let's stop talking about it. You know what? You know what? Do what my husband says. My husband says when uh, anything he does something objectionable, it's part of me. <laughs> it is part of me. <laughs> I'm living out loud, folks. Like wedding to exhale here. This is like uh, woo. Eight 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 nine hundred three three nine three at Will Kane at Se Cup. It's been see- good hanging out with you for the last two weeks. It's, it's, it's Will's last day. Uh, <laughs> all right, let's talk about the RNC. Take a time out. The uh, Republican National Convention. 
as you know. Uh, we went together the last at the last one at Tampa. Squatchy, sweaty Tampa. And uh, we had a good time. I mean, you know, the RNC is the RNC, and it's a lot of work, and you're running around, and uh, we, we did some radio there. We, uh, we also did uh, Real News uh, at the Blaze booth. We did some CNN. We did some stuff there. Uh, and, uh, you know, you, you get to know the city that the RNC is in pretty well. Mm-hmm. Because the city comes out, you know, all the restaurants, the bars, the entertainment, they all put on something of a show during the convention because it's huge money for the city and tourists come and lots of people come and they know they can uh, they can get some publicity, they can make some money and showcase the beautiful city or in the case of last year, Tampa. Um, so now the RNC, uh, the Republican National Committee is trying to figure out where to hold the Republican National Convention. And they've announced, like, a short list of some of the cities they're considering. Okay. What are they? Well, this one will please you, Dallas, which I actually love that idea. Cincinnati, Columbus, Cleveland. Those are three Ohio cities, which gives you an indication of how valuable they think Ohio is. (laughs) Phoenix. Mm -hmm. Denver. I'm writing these down. The Sunshine State. Uh, and Vegas. And there was some brouhaha over the idea of the RNC being in Vegas because it's in city and you have, you have all of these well-meaning Republicans so close to all of this vice, right? Right. The last thing you need coming out of a Republican national convention is home videos of RNC delegates. At strip clubs. Just leave it that to stop. Don't, don't, don't. You don't have to get too descriptive, Will. You worried about me this morning? A little bit, a little bit. <laughs> don't get too descriptive. At strip clubs. Sorry, we'll just, just say stop that. Stop talking, stop talking. Drinking, you know, debaucherous. The problem I have is I actually love Vegas. I love Vegas for two days. That's, that's it. Uh, I can't do Vegas for more than two days, but I love Vegas. I mean, great restaurants. I always have a, a an awesome time in Vegas. Great hotels. All the amenities are right there. And you know what? The city in America, per capita, with the highest rate of strip clubs, Tampa. There you go. Tampa. And actually, I think a close second, Cleveland. <laughs> I mean, you can't avoid vice. I mean, unless you were to hold this in Salt Lake City, maybe. Let's write this down, Cleveland. You, <laughs> you really can't avoid it. I mean, there's going to be bars. There's going to be restaurants. There might be strip clubs. There might be dancing girls. I mean, that is what, what it is. And hopefully Republicans can, you know, control themselves. But uh, I like Dallas on this list because I, I, Dallas is a really cool city. I don't have to tell you. I love the Big D. There's great food. There's good barbecue. Um, that's a fun town. Some of these other ones on this list, no, not so much. Well, let's do this. Um, not so much. Can we talk about what the criteria would be that would establish someplace as a good city to host the RNC? My criteria? Let's do that. Okay. I think it should be, especially for this year. Mm-hmm. And you remember, I mean, just like CPAC or any other convention, the media descends on this and they write about it and talk about it for days. So they're going to be there. They're going to be talking about stuff. Why not do it in a great, fun, young, diverse, culturally hip city so that the convention can take advantage of all of those great restaurants and entertainers and cultural sites and experiences and incorporate some cool, hip diverse, young stuff instead of, like, the Gatlin brothers. 
<laughs> who I love, who I love. But I mean, that's usually what you get when you go to an RNC or a CPAC. You get the traditional. Right, older... You're making an argument for Boise, for Austin, for Portland. You're making an argument for those over Seattle, L.A., Boston. Yeah, yes. yeah, liberal cities. To be honest, young 100%. liberal cities. Yes. Yeah. So listen, I appreciate that argument. You and I are both huge fans of Senator Mike Lee of Utah, who says that the 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 uh, the focus of conservatism needs to change from ferreting out heretics mm-hmm. to identifying converts. That's right. And I believe that. However, I understand that conventions are about optics and. You want to go into one of these liberal, cool cities, cities that I like, and establish uh, some optics of we're comfortable, we apply, we belong everywhere, our values are universal, and we're not just the Gatlin brothers. But I would offer you this in reverse on the optics. You don't want to have a convention where there are more hecklers, where there are more protesters than there are supporters. You Why want, not? Remember because Denver? Conventions, because conventions are not about persuasion. Through the television screen they are. They are, they are, uh, they are about uh, optics. You want, to, you, want to, you want to highlight all the good things about your party. You want to come off looking positive, energetic. You want hands clapping. Yeah, but Will, remember 2008 Democratic Convention in Denver? The only story coming out of that were the protests. There were protests in Denver, people scaling the walls, trying to attack people in the DNC for, for a great number of reasons. That worked out pretty well for Barack Obama. I think the convention, while I want to identify converts, I think the the convention is a time to play on home to go to to go to friendly environs speak to friends only i no, don't think no, that's no. right in the crowd speak to friends only speak to converts through the optics of the television screen which should be all positive you play a home game at the convention you play a home game i, I disagree and i think we have to stop being scared of negative attention or um or criticism or going into hostile territory because we need denver we need phoenix we need uh, L.A. We need Boston, and you know what? We can play there, and and uh, we can we can we can identify converts. We've played a hundred cities. We rocked them all. <laughs> exactly. Well, I have some um, I have some trivia for you. Oh, I last night I spent some time just for you and our listeners coming up with some fun trivia about the host cities on this RNC shortlist. And I want to see how well you know these cities. Okay? Okay. My first question, and it's multiple choice. Which city ranks higher in red meat consumption? Your choices are Dallas, Cincinnati, or Denver. I am going to... Walk me through your thought process. uh, Denver's out. Denver's out. Too many organic, green, um, granola bar, crunchy types. A lot of ca- cattle in Colorado, too, but okay. Um, it's Cincinnati or Dallas. The, the your, your gut instinct is to say Dallas. Steakhouses, Texas. Uh, there's something about Cincinnati that's that's calling to me. It's the contrarian in me. It's mm. the, mm. did you know, SE wouldn't be asking you this if it was the, if the answer were Dallas. So I'm going to go Cincinnati. Oh, interesting. All in, Bob, on Cincinnati. That was fascinating thought process, and it was correct. <laughs> it was correct. It is Cincinnati. I mean, which makes sense. You know, Midwest, a lot of meat, meat eaters out there. And by meat eaters, I mean good people. Okay, the next question. Which is ranked a top city for bar hopping? Cleveland, 
Phoenix or Dallas? Dallas. No, I'm sorry. That's incorrect. Dallas is not a top city for bar hopping. Mm. What is the answer? It's Cleveland. False. False. Just incorrect, I'm sure. Well, I know Phoenix is not. I've never been to Ohio. Oh. So I don't know why I'm speaking with Learning a lot about Will today. (laughs) Doesn't know what cup of soup is and has never been to Ohio. And can get fooled (laughs) on Twitter. (laughs) All right. uh, What city is ranked as one of the top 15 if you want to get an STD? Oh, was, <laughs> I'm back. I'm not saying. Uh, what's this? this is a multiple choice. <laughs> and I'm not saying that anyone wants to get an STD. I'm just saying uh, apparently these are not sexually clean cities. Uh, one of the top 15, is it Vegas, Dallas, or Denver? And this is according to a dating site called Positive Singles that it exists for people who are STD positive. So Dallas, Denver, or Vegas. Or Vegas are in the top 15. I have to choose which one of these. Is in the top 15 for STDs. Denver. No. Man. It's a trick question. Oh. Because well, okay. they all are. This, that's... Vegas, Dallas, and Denver are all in the top 15 cities for STDs. Okay. Some people go to a place for a hamburger or, or a museum. <laughs> others, others go for STDs. Okay. What did Reader's Digest call one of the five cleanest cities? Was it Denver, Vegas, or Columbus? Okay, I need only because of context in your previous question for you to define clean. Oh, uh, I I looked this up. (laughs) Reader's Digest defines that as good air quality, water quality, and sanitation. Okay. Choices are again? The choices are Denver, Vegas, or Columbus, which is in Ohio. Oh, thank you. Uh Uh-huh. Denver again. You're saying Denver? Yes. No, it's Columbus, which is in Ohio. <sighs> You'd know had you been to Ohio. I came out of the gate strong going one for one, and I have been swinging and missing ever since. You, yeah, you are, you are one for one. Okay, final question. It's your chance to turn it all around. Okay. And end on a high note. Okay. What's one of travel and leisure's five best cities for live music? Is it Dallas, Vegas, or Cleveland, which is in Ohio? This time it's Cleveland. Cleveland rocks. Cleveland rocks. You would think that. And with the Music Hall of Fame, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, it's Vegas. It's It's Vegas. Vegas. I mean, I guess that's, you can, you can see that because the bars are all in such close proximity. Sometimes you don't even have to like leave, go outside with all of the walkways and bridges to get from bar to bar to bar and live music place to live music place. And you know, a lot of entertainers go to Vegas to perform. So I guess that's the rationale there. All right. Let you me just, failed. Um, you don't know America. You are not a patriot. Oh, wow. That went far. That went quickly. <laughs> that escalated quickly. I'm going to leave you with Dirk Carney who says, show summary so far, projectile vomit, Hitler, Gwyneth, Donna Summer, NASCAR cursing, cutting in New York City. Thanks a lot. Coming up next, Essie's Confessional, 888-900-3393. Tweet me at Will Kane. Tweet her at Essie Cup. This is Kane and Cup. You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Well, this is the part of the show where you tell me your deepest, darkest secrets. 
Why? Because I have a throaty voice. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it, it usually gets people to tell me stuff. Like on Twitter, um, I got a number of cup confessionals. Uh, Chris Naff says, in sixth grade, I cheated on a vocab test. One of two in the class to get a 100. Felt so little and ashamed. Glad I got that off my chest. Hmm. I'm so happy I could help you, Chris. Yeah, thanks, Chris. I got another one. It's called. It's from It's Spencer Brown on Twitter. Uh, oh, no. No, sorry. That's a different one. Uh, this is from T.R. Southpaw. He says, while sleepwalking one night, I took a leak in my buddy's fridge. Wow. I know so many guys who have done that. It's usually alcohol-induced. Wow. It's not the fridge, but it could be any number of places in the house. Well, that happened. Uh, and thank you, T.R. Southpaw, for your confession. I hope that I hope that was helpful. We got a caller uh, who wants to confess something. What's your confession? Tell me all about it. Hello, congratulations on your new show. Thanks. What do you want to? What secret do you want to tell me? I have a crush on Buck Sexton. Well, who doesn't? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just he is so well spoken and articulate, and so unafraid of his values and his knowledge of history is just. So much more impressive than someone who works out at the gym every day. It's so hot. And you you just don't find combinations like that in a person. And I just hope that he is encouraged in his new show uh, during the week. I've been listening to him since August. Uh, I first heard him at The Man in the Moon. And um, the the best of luck to him and to you guys with your new show. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, I love I, I I'll tell Buck. That you find him so so dreamy. I'm sure he'll be he'll be I don't uh, have a, flattered. I don't have Twitter or Facebook, so I can't tell him myself, and I'm also too shy. Consider the message delivered. But this is Essa. why. I mean, I get. Thank you for calling in. This I get people to talk to me. You do. I get people to open up. You do think so, right? <laughs> you do think so. Think about your your uh, cup confessions because I want to hear them. Keep them coming, people. When we come back, should college athletes be paid? Dante Stallworth is going to join us. 888-900-3393 on Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Radio Network. How's your radio show? Talk to me. How's Essie Cup? I recognize that voice. That was Wilbur, right? That's right. Love him. Makeup artist at the Blaze Studios here in New York City. Cute. I, I, I just want to tell people I got some fun confessions. Uh, Spencer Brown says... I'm using this morning's cane and cup to put off writing a midterm on ecumenical councils. There you go. That's good. And I like this one from Jeffrey Forston. In my over 35 years of working in the food and beverage industry, I have never given a guest the correct change. <laughs> never, not <laughs> once. <laughs> he says he's been off by a couple of pennies for years. <laughs> Those are good confessions. Like Those it. are. Welcome back to Cane and Cup. I'm Will Kane. I'm Ezzy Cup. Um, this hour we're talking about whether or not college athletes should be paid. For their time they put in on the athletic field. Now, 
Let me make my case, and we'll start with giving you the news of the week. This week, the Chicago region of the National Labor Relations Board certified the Northwestern University Wildcats football team as employees, professional employees, as opposed to amateur student-athletes. The NLRB received an application from the Northwestern football team. It was led by a former quarterback named uh, Kane Coulter. And they said, we want to be able to unionize. We want to be able to take a vote within the team to unionize. And the NLRB um, analyzed their status and said, yeah, based upon the number of hours these guys put in, 50 to 60 hours a week, tightly controlled by the coach, their schedules, their meals, their curfews, when they go to bed. And based upon the number of dollars these guys generate for the university, they're professional employees. They're much more akin to professional employees than they are amateur student-athletes, and they can take now a vote to unionize. Now, Essie, I, uh, I actually agree with the NLRB here. I don't know that I agree that unionizing is the best way for college athletes to go about accomplishing their goals. Mm-hmm. They're going to have to now apply uh, appeal to the NLRB uh, in Washington, D.C., and then it would go on from there to the federal court system. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to make my case to you like this. Let me just share with you some of the revenue dollars that various athletic departments take in across this country. Mm -hmm. The number one athletic department in this country, as it's want to be, is the University of Texas. UT generates, as an athletic department, over $160 million a year. 104 of that from the football team. Wow. Number two, University of Michigan. $128 $128 million a year in athletic department revenue. Wolverines. No, no, Wolverines. Thank you for that. Number three, <laughs> Alabama, $124 million. Number Roll Tide. Number four, Auburn, $106 million. You got anything on Auburn? Uh, Yeah, Auburn. That's Gibbs' team, right? It's War Eagle. War Eagle, right, okay. That's what you say. Okay. University of Georgia, $91 million wow. in athletic department revenue. We're talking hundred. Millions of dollars here that these guys, these re- these athletic departments are taking in based upon the talent and the time that these kids are putting in. Mm-hmm. I would suggest, yes, they are professional employees. You were a college athlete, right? I was. What do you, uh, can I share water polo? Yeah, you can. Water polo. <laughs> um, not a revenue generating sport. No? <laughs> okay. Not <laughs> contributing to those millions of dollars taken in by the athletic department. Mm-hmm. But look, these guys are a captive market. They cannot go seek their fair market value the way the truth is any other student on campus can. Yeah. They cannot go to the pros. You are precluded from going to the pros in basketball for one year, in football for right. two to three years. Mm-hmm. You can't just go straight from high school to the pros. So if you have this immense talent, you are, you are consigned to going to amateur status, to devoting those talents to a university in exchange for a scholarship. Now, is that scholarship the fair market value of these guys' talent and time? I, it's, it's value. Is it fair market? So you, I would suggest you know. You like this idea because you think it's fair. It's fair to these student-athletes. Yes. I like this idea, I think, for a different reason. And I think that's because there's out uh, for me, there's outsized importance on college athletics. College is a place where you should go to get an education. And I agree that extracurricular stuff is part of that. I mean, I learned more from working in a college newspaper than I ever did in an art history class. And I took many. That was my major. 
Um, so the the whole the 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 global college experience is valuable. However, I think there's outsized importance on college athletics, and it's so it's so important. And there's so much money and revenue and so much attention that I think a, a lot of students who become athletes don't pay attention to the education, and educators don't pay as much attention to it either. The, the goal is to get that student athlete to the game every week, out the door. Pin that degree on him just so we can say we did. And then hopefully he's on to the next, on to the pros. And why would they do that? In order to reap all of those hundreds right. of millions of dollars I'm talking about. And it's not just the athletic department. These presidents of these universities, they want their teams to be successful of on course, the field. Gets, TCU, Texas right. Christian University, went from a middling football program a few years ago to a national powerhouse. I know, because I'm from this area of the country, that applications to TCU went through the roof from kids all across this country. And what happens when your applications go through the roof? The price of your tuition goes through the roof. Supply and demand. And they can raise get, the price of their education. You also get bigger endowments, and that's what right. a lot of colleges want, too. I mean, that that's the whole point, too. And so for me... Paying the college athlete, I mean, those those stats that you rattled off are amazing. $140 million, $160 million. I think when you start paying college athletes a salary, and that goes public, that is public knowledge, and you get to compare the salary of a student athlete to how much, say, the science department got in a year, I think people will be pretty grossed out by that. And I, I hope, my hope is that long-term... The role of college athletics takes a real hit. I love college sports. I really do. But I think I, I want college to be about college. I get that. But here's what I'm telling you. Everybody is right. It is not a bats. development league. College has become a development league. That's correct. But it is benefiting everybody in the food chain from the president of the university. Not benefiting the athlete. The athlete's is, not learning as much as he should. He's the only one. That's my point. The science department that you want to protect is actually being subsidized by that athlete. Right. The revenue right. he brings in for that university is funding the research projects at that science department. Everyone is benefiting except for the guy who's yep. risking himself on the field. And we should point out, by the way, that the Northwestern football players are not fighting to get paid, actually. They're fighting to be able to get medical benefits, health care benefits, to take the risk of injury that they put on the field and have that offset in a way that a scholarship doesn't. Because if these guys get hurt, concussion, yeah. severe injuries, the school isn't there for them after That's right. college. That's right. Yeah, and, and I think the school has another responsibility to be there for them, and that is to teach them. So that when sports go away, or you get that injury, or you get too old, or you get that concussion, or you can no longer play, or you no longer want to play, you can do other things. That's the responsibility of a college, too. Now, if you turn these guys into professional uh, employees, into professional athletes, you open up a can of worms. And a lot of people look at this and go, I like college sports the way it is, and I don't want to disrupt that. You know, what happens do, do, if these guys become professional employees? Does their scholarship value then become taxable income? Northwestern costs something like $70,000 a year to wow. attend. Is, wow. that, is that taxable income? Mm. What does it do to the college football system that we've had in place? And many people want to want to defend that. And I understand that implication because I love it too. I want to sit down on Saturdays and watch the University of Texas beat the Texas A&M Aggies and the OU Sooners over and over yeah. and over. But I also recognize an injustice, and you have a captive employee market that can't reach their value. Tell you what, let's a open lot, this up. A lot up. of people on Twitter agree. I mean, a lot of people on Twitter agree. One person said, let the, the idiots unionize and then be taxed on their scholarships. Just like you said, someone else said, college athletes should unionize, then require them to pay taxes. 
Let's do this. I want to open this up to the audience. There's an audience on Twitter that disagrees that there are, there are mm-hmm. some people on the phones as well. 888-900-3393. I want to get to that. I want to hear any opinions that tell me I'm wrong because I'm open to considering this is a can of worms. Mm-hmm. The unpredictable consequences of this are huge. And the NCAA has been trying to reconcile and deal oh, with this for this. years. And they're oh, fighting yeah. it. They're yeah. fighting it away. But when we come back, uh, we'll ask a former college athlete himself, Dante Stallworth, former wide receiver for the Tennessee Volunteers, NFL wide receiver, what he thinks. Uh, should college players move in the direction of professional athletes and start receiving payment? When we come back on Kane and Cup. You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Uh, Christy and Joe Horton, uh, ninth anniversary, and Hugh Janus turning 10. We had mentioned... I'm sorry. What? I'm sorry. It's, it's one of those... It's one of those... <laughs> <laughs> I totally felt more, didn't I? <laughs> Don't feel bad, Will. It happens. It happens to everyone. Will, Will got duped by a, a person on Twitter. Mm. Got tricked into saying his uh, not suitable for work Twitter handle. Oh, I've been punch drunk like a boxer ever since then, kind of wobbling on my feet. I know. I Thanks know. to Chris Salcedo, by the way, who's going to follow us up in about uh, 40 minutes for sending us that clip, <laughs> letting me know. <laughs> You're I'm not, not alone. alone. You're not alone. It's part of you. TV talking heads from L.A. to New York do the same thing. Thank you, Chris. Everybody stick around for Chris's show 40 minutes from now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've been talking about um, college athletes and whether or not they should be paid uh, like pro athletes and whether they should be compensated for their work because mm-hmm. they work pretty hard, mm-hmm. whether they should profit off of the immense profits that um, the NCAA and colleges make off of these games and off of their programs uh, and whether they should unionize. Can I tell you something? What? I, I, apparently, I need to take an FCC course on what kind of language I can use on the radio. But it's Radio 101. You don't chew gum or use a cough drop while you are performing radio. What are you doing over I there? Need a cough, I needed a cough you drop. You have a hard candy in your mouth. That is miserable. Stop. Stop. I needed, a, I needed a cough drop, though. Let me go to Mike in Kentucky if I can. Mike, uh, I think he has a take on whether or not college athletes should be being paid like professional athletes. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, I played football in college, and, you know, one of the things that I would see this as, as in uh, the language that the NLRB used is pretty uh, precise, calling them professional employees. Because whether or not you're uh, an athlete or not, if they consider you a professional employee, you still have to get around the NCAA rules. And in the NCAA, uh, once you hire an agent, you're considered a professional athlete, and you're no longer eligible to play in the NCAA. If they unionize and you have a union representative, then you're going to have an agent. That would make you ineligible to play in the NCAA, whether you're paid or not. Yeah, Mike, but that's the whole point, is to disrupt the NCAA rules as they exist, because the NCAA rules as they exist essentially exist like a cartel. 
to create a captive market of employees where everyone reaps the benefit of their talents, everyone reaps the revenue of their talents, except for the athletes themselves. The rules themselves are what have to be changed, right? Exactly. I mean, you have to change those rules, but that's kind of like an underhanded way of them being able to have a club. I mean, I understand the unions just want to get memberships, but to be able to say, hey, look, you're either going to change the rules for the NCAA or we're going to make all these people ineligible and you won't have a product. Yeah, I got you. I got you. Uh, Mike, where'd you play real quick? I play at Georgetown College in Kentucky. All right, Mike. Thanks for calling in. We're going to go from Georgetown College, if we can, to the University of Tennessee. I got that right, Dante, right? <laughs> yeah. University of Tennessee. <laughs> yeah. And then what? Dante Stallworth, uh, former wide receiver for the University of Tennessee. And then, Dante, look, I've followed you. New Orleans Saints, Cleveland Browns. Where else were you? Oh, boy. Uh, You guys have time for me to list all my things? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I played for Philadelphia, played for Baltimore, played for the uh, uh, Washington. I played for New England Patriots. Uh, I'm sure I'm leaving a team or two out. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dante, what do you think about this? You, uh, you, you've heard we're having this conversation about whether or not college athletes can should be paid. Let's set aside whether or not they should be able to unionize. Uh, but do you think college athletes should be paid? Well, I think first, and um, for, I mean, the most important thing is you, you, when you look at the NCAA, you look at um, they they have nearly uh, over over a billion dollars in, in new revenue that comes in every year. And you have these players that are that are under federal law. They they are employees, whether you know people agree with it or not, it's it's under federal law. The the uh, National Labor Relations Board found that uh, the found those college players to be employees. So it's not an opinion. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone can have an opinion on whether or not these college players are employees, but it is um, you know, federal law that under federal law that these guys are uh, considered employees, and they want the protections that come under the classification of employees. But if uh, everything that the NCAA does, I mean, there's you know, there's a lot of hypocrisy going on um, within that organization. I had my own personal experience when I was in college, but you. What was your? What was that? Um. Well, uh, to make a long story short, I was. Um. I and, and this is it's so interesting because they actually somewhat changed uh, or altered, I should say. They altered the, the rule that, um, that players, or NFL players at least, once you declare um, as an underclassman, which I did my, my junior year, I, I, I decided to forego my senior season and, and enter the NFL draft. And I, I hadn't hired an agent yet. And I, was, uh, I came back the next day after I had uh, filled out my paperwork and sent it to New York to the NFL offices to uh to submit my name uh for the uh, special eligibility which is underclassman eligibility and uh i i don't know what happened i, I just i started missing college and uh and i wanted to go back and, and and play my senior year so i went into my my coach's uh office and i told him that i wanted to get back into school and you know what how what, what can we do about that and so we had to go through this whole uh little process and every year the ncaa what they do is they they have these they have these pamphlets and they bring people in to talk to your to your uh, players and and they really encourage you to stay in school and to uh, and you know to finish finish school and right. get an education and don't and and don't uh, you know leave school early for for the pros. Now me in my situation I was um, I was projected to go uh, uh, well the there's a board that you could uh, that you could apply to to see where you would be drafted at. And mine came back middle first to middle second round, and I told myself, I you know, if, if I had to leave school, I'd be fine with 
was being drafted middle 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 first to middle second. So um, what happened was we we went through this whole ordeal where the first three weeks uh, I I had to uh, to appeal to a certain panel. I don't know the exact name of the panel, but um, I appealed to them and they denied it after three weeks. And then I had to go through another appeals process, would have been which would have been another three weeks. And uh, now, mind you, this is you know. I'm, I'm, right. I'm, uh, this is like weeks before the NFL combine and yeah. I didn't want to be stuck in limbo. So what happened was that, you know, with, and I'm, and I'm honestly thinking that, okay, the NCAA, this, here's a, here's a great, here's a great story for the NCAA. Not that I wanted to be the focal point, but here's a great story. Here's a guy that's, that's projected to go, um, you know, high in the draft and he decides that he changes his mind and decides he wants to stay in school. Yeah. So, I'm thinking, okay, now I hadn't hired an agent yet, which makes you immediately un- unavailable. Um, yeah, and you're college. thinking they would, love, they would love this, that they would love that yeah. you wanted to stay in school and play yeah. for them. Hey, Dante, and, let me ask you this real uh, quick. We're going to run sure. out of time. One of the rationales that the, that the court used for saying these guys are professional employees said they worked like 50 to 60 hours a week at, at their sport, at, their, mm-hmm. at, at football. Whatever. How many hours a week did you put in when you were at the University of Tennessee? Oh, God. Um, you know what? We were there, I would say, let's see, including workouts, which was – uh, two hours, and then meetings, which was another two, three hours. Uh, then practice, which was another two, three hours. And post-practice meetings, mm-hmm. which was uh, another hour, maybe hour and a half. So um, six hours a day, half. six, seven hours a day? Yeah, at, at least, yeah, at least. And well, um, Dante, uh, let me ask you, I, uh, what, do you see any problems with paying athletes, paying student-athletes? Um, it's a good question because I, I, think, I think initially – the, the the main focus should be that these these players are recognized as employees. But as far as as far as paying them, you know, one of the one of the um, the the issues is that they don't allow, or at least when I was in school, they don't they didn't allow us to have jobs, right? So, or I mean, or yeah, and make make income somewhere you else. Know what I mean? yeah, right. So or you, declare not, for the NFL not, until yeah. your third year, so you cannot work. Yeah, like what I mean, I think you could, when I was in school, it was only during the summertime, mm. which was three week, three, four, five weeks out of the year. Mm. But you know, yeah, if you're if you're making, you know, you're making all this money, and you and you're telling me I can't have a job, so like, what am I supposed right. to do? Like that's, I mean, that's that's not that's not good. No, you know? it's it doesn't seem very fair, and no, we we appreciate your perspective, Dante. We gotta we gotta go to a break, but thanks for calling in, and uh, oh, no problem. Hope to see you soon, buddy. Um, you know, it doesn't seem fair, and and I think you're right, Will. This is going to open a huge can of worms, but it's probably what we have to do. Uh, all right, well, that was that was an interesting talk. Uh, come back for Kane Cup. This is Kane and Cup, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. What do I think about the Will and S.E. radio show? I think it's a perfect match because S.E. is a gorgeous piece of that everybody wants to listen to. And Will is a really good-looking guy that is the only one that's logical. So you get logical and ass together. <laughs> that, does, that, does that accurately sum us up? I shudder to think. I'm shuddering. I, I, I have been shuddering. We were not I discussing during the break. 
I, my, my, my meter's off. Yeah, you have no barometer for what you can and can't say. Well, I know some things you cannot say. You know some things you can't say. Right. You don't know all of them. Clearly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I would like to start it's a okay. list. You'll get there. There's a chalkboard right here. We're going to start a list. Of all the things that Will Kane can't say. Right. Yeah. You've done this before. I remember you did it on Real News once. It's a word. Said something you shouldn't say. And I still don't understand why I can't say we it. We don't have to get into it. But it's not you a bad should, word. It, it was not a good word to say on television, on the TV. <sighs> Plain spoken. Just, just salt to the earth. That's all I am. It's part of me. <laughs> <laughs> all right. This is I Blow Your Mind. This well, is the segment where I attempt to blow yeah, your you mind. Yeah, you try to blow my mind. That's right. You don't always get to blow my mind. It's not, don't take for granted that every time we do this blow your mind segment, you're actually going to blow my mind just because last week you blew my mind once. And I'm not feeling confident today. It could be because of my uh, FCC violations, <laughs> but I feel a little weak in the knees. Yeah. I, 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 so I'm going to throw these you pitches. You might not get there today. I get three stories, three chances to blow your mind. Number one. Okay. I'm going to attack several uh, cliched platitudes that we hold in our minds we accept as truths, and I'm going to attempt to blow your minds with those. Oh, okay. Here is cliche number one. We live in this highly corporatized environment where we need to worry about Google taking over the world and FedEx running everything, that the corporations are the great rival to government out there, uh-huh. and we need to worry about this. Okay. Did you know that in 1958, the average company on the Standard & Poor's 500 list. That's the top 500 companies they choose to represent the greater spectrum of the economy. Yeah. The lifespan of those companies uh-huh. was fifty was 61 years okay. in 1958. Okay. Today, the average lifespan of a company on that list mm-hmm. is 18 years. That's longer creative than I would destruction, think. Creative mm-hmm. destruction at its best. Okay. Corporations, not to worry. They go out of business on their own. Okay. Swing and a miss, right? Are you done? That's it? Number one. No. Mind is far from blown. I mean, that's that's an interesting factoid, Will, but it takes more than a factoid at this table to blow my mind. That uh, doesn't bode well for my next two stories. What do you think lasts longer then? Another platitude we talk about is, we talked about this earlier in the show, divorce Uh on the rise. Relationships more ephemeral than ever in American culture. What was that word? Ephemeral. No. That's not right. What is it? <laughs> say it again. Ephemeral. No. <laughs> what do you say? What do you say? It's ephemeral. Whatever. <laughs> I love, I can't wait till we have a regular segment where it's just Will mispronounces stuff. <laughs> and we just play all of your mispronounced words. Ephemeral. There you go. Yay, you What did lasts it. longer? Marriage or the lifespan of your average company? The lifespan of your average company. Lasts longer than marriage. Yeah. The percentage of companies that last longer than five years, that is they come into existence and don't go out of business before five years expires, is 55% of companies. The number of marriages that last longer than five years is 80%. Oh, wow. Good news for marriage. Marriages last longer. When you take that time frame out to 10 years, Mm -hmm. it is... Companies, 37% last longer than 10 years. Marriages, 67% last wow. longer than 10 years. Wow. What did I do? How did I do on that one? My, you, you half blew my mind. My all mind right. is half blown. My final attempt to blow your mind. Another platitude we all accept is that kids are more promiscuous today than they ever have been in the past. Mm-hmm. I mean, listen, I've been on guys' weekends. I've had conversations 
was like, wow, can you believe the way it is today? And I don't know what influences on this thought process, whether or not it's MTV, right? Sexting. Sexting. Technology makes, I think, it easier to be a little promiscuous. We assume these kids are out here doing things that never- Little slutty. Existed yeah. in our day. Right. Right? Well, this is from 538, Nate Silver's new website. It is a survey from the Youth Risk Behavior. Um, in 1991, so this is in yours and mine range here. Well, you're older than me. You just had a birthday last Shut night. Shut your mouth. You are. You shut your mouth when you're talking to me. <laughs> I, know, I know what that's from. In 1991, 54% of ninth to 12th graders suggested they had had sex. In what year? 91? 91. Yeah. 20 years later, in 2011, that number has dropped to 47% of wow. kids say they have had sex. That's ninth to 12th graders. Wow. Isn't that is that our only, is that the only judge though? Like whether you've had sex? Because I think you can still be more promiscuous and not have sex. Well, that's, it actually brings that up. It, 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 it in the survey, it talks about whether or not kids consider oral sex sex. Mm-hmm. So when it's termed sexual intercourse, uh, it's true, I think, that many of modern-day teenagers are not calling that yeah. sexual intercourse. I think Bill Clinton gave them the, uh, the excuse. Depends on what the meaning of is is. Yeah. Right. Right. Um. Huh, well, that's interesting. Interesting. But I think, yeah, you didn't blow my mind. Sorry. You you uh you struck out this time, but but look, not on top of your game today. You're a little, little thrown by learning about um some words you can't say on the radio, and and some words you just can't say. You just don't know how to pronounce <laughs> words I can't say on the radio, and words I can't say. Yeah, you just can't life. say words are not your friend today. Um, no, I think every back to the, the last point I think you made was good. I think every generation thinks their generation is somehow unique and different and new. And, and every really generation's isn't. birthright is to think that the next generation is taking us to hell in a handbasket. Right. And, 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 and we had it so much harder than you have. It. I don't know that that's ever true. No, that's it's it's not true that everyone is taking us down this sliding scale towards worse. Now, there are things that you and I talk about on a nightly basis, whether or not it's on The Blaze or on CNN, that need to be corrected, that our government is doing and growing and and corrupting and perverting in our culture and society. But the truth is, and I know this is this is a hard thing, the world generally gets better. Right. Violence goes down. Right. Standards of living go, go up. Right. Yeah. And that's a testament to human beings, not to the organizers and governments among us. I want to share um, a quick Will Cain story because one time he was on CNN and he tried to pronounce the word cacophony, and, which is a hard word, um, but you didn't, no one made you say it. <laughs> you, you, chose, you chose to say it, and instead he said it, um, cacophony. Yeah. Cacophony. Put that there with the ephemeral. Ephemeral. Yeah, ephemeral. <laughs> Uh, which we can't even blame on your Texas accent. Like, you just chose to pronounce that wrong. Just George Bush in me. <laughs> a thermal. A thermal. Cacophony. All right. So I struck out this week I'm on I'm making a Will Kane dictionary. Yeah, we'll pull these. We'll put the words Will can't say on the radio on one side of the chalkboard and the words Will can't say on the other just side. Just in general. Right. <laughs> I like it. All right. When we come back on Kane and Cup after the break, we're going to talk about, uh, speaking of words, word police. Mm. Um, Stephen Colbert got himself in some trouble this week, and I don't think everybody in the audience is necessarily unified behind us. I got some pushback last night on Real News for suggesting the political collect- correct word police have uh, have gone too far. They can't even understand satire anymore. When we come back on Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network.
Cane and Cup. Cup. Cane and Cup. And Cup. Cane and Cup. Cane and Cup. <laughs> uh, welcome back to Kane and Cup. I'm Will Kane along with Essie Cup. This is our final stretch to 12 o'clock when we luckily turn it over to... Luckily for you. Yeah, luckily for me. Man, you've had a day. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a tough one for you today. It has. <laughs> you want to review? You want to go over all the words I've said that I can't say? Gosh, I mean... You don't want to review. You, you, said, you, said, you said a bad word. Then... You read a tweet that you probably shouldn't have read. You didn't. You didn't do that knowingly. I feel no. I feel no guilt on that one. No, I because just, you didn't do it intentionally. But any idiot would have looked <laughs> at that Twitter handle and not read it aloud. Thank you. Uh, and then, well, you you mispronounce some words, but that's just you just do that. Language. Language. Hashtag I'm, language. I'm looking up on the board. The top story on the blaze right now is Bill Maher tricks guests with racist Paul Ryan quote that was actually said by Michelle Obama. Yeah, that's gold. That is gold. Somebody else is getting in trouble with language this week, not only me and Bill Maher's guests, was Stephen Colbert. He was mocking the owner of the Washington Redskins, Dan Snyder, who has taken a lot of heat for the name of that football team, Redskins, and his resistance to changing that name. He's going to hold fast to tradition, the name of the Redskins, despite whoever says they're offended by it. And he's also going to set up a foundation uh, for Native Americans to show that he cares. <laughs> and Stephen Colbert said, is that all you have to do? You can say whatever you want. You can offend any way you want. You can set up a foundation. And then he made a joke on his show, and he tweeted out that joke, and it didn't really pan out for Colbert. This was his joke. Listen. But I'm willing to show the Asian community that I care. By introducing the Ching Chong Ding Dong Foundation for Sensitivity to Orientals or whatever. It is a wonderful charity. Thank you. That right there and the tweet that accompanied it it, started a trend on Twitter called Cancel Colbert. It caused many, I don't know, if in the Asian community, but not only in the Asian American community, uh, to say this is incredibly insensitive. This is incredibly wrong. And it is also... Satire. I hope right, they understand. Right. Right. I mean, I think the 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 most most of the hate and and the criticism came from seeing a tweet that was, uh, you know, in fairness, out of context. I think if you just see that tweet from someone like Stephen Colbert, and it's not it's not in the context of satire, it looks pretty offensive. People didn't watch the show and see the context that that was in, and it was a quote pulled from the show. And that it's clearly satire. And he's, I mean, you know what Colbert does. He plays a character, and that character is ignorant. That's the point of his character. It's beside the point that his ignorant character, he plays off as conservative, Bill O'Reilly-like. We, as those of us who are on the opposite side of the value and political spectrum from Stephen Colbert, are the butt of the joke, largely. Yeah, oh yeah, he's making fun of conservatives. Yeah. And he plays a conservative. He plays a cartoon conservative. And so in saying that, he is satirizing um, not only Dan Snyder, but also the version of conservatism that he, you know, disagrees with, that he thinks is is terrible. 
And he has incurred the wrath of the professionally offended, the willing victim, the word police. And in the end, I don't care what side of the political spectrum you're on. I will defend Stephen Colbert. It's not enough whether or not I think the joke is appropriate or not. Right. I had somebody after Real News the other night say, this offends your Asian-American viewers. Do you understand this? What I would say is this. Why is everybody so willfully offended? Now, it may be white privilege, and I've had that argued back to me. That's an easy argument for you to make, white guy. Mm -hmm. But isn't it? Haven't we fully indulged the offense industry so thoroughly that you can't – you have no idea what you can say or not? Yeah. I think I've illustrated that over this day. Well, I, <laughs> yes. Yes, you have. Yes, you have. Um, yeah, I mean I think – yeah, the, the word police, the thought police, uh, it's so uh, exhausting to me and tiring and lazy and boring. It's just boring. And I think um, what, what people like Colbert do and do, do pretty well – with satire is they use humor and I think intelligence at, at times to uh, make some kind of cultural or social commentary that's valuable. I would also defend Colbert um, and say that there are better there are better ways to um, call out genuine racism, genuine racism than to fixate on a tweet by Stephen Colbert that was clearly satire. That's solving no problems. And You're not have, solving hashtag racism. <laughs> no, it, and we have fully empowered the offense industry into silencing speech. That's well, what and he, he apologized, well, which I not. also disagree with. Right. He apologized. He took the tweet down. At first, Comedy Central was like, this This actually isn't Stephen Colbert tweeting. Someone's tweeting. A, Who cares? You pulled a quote from the show. He did say it. And why is he apologizing and taking it down? And it didn't make any sense to me. I just, I'm, I'm worried culturally we're moving to this place where uh, offense is valued greater than speech. And it's, uh, we're not talking about prior restraint on speech or government intervention on free speech. We're talking about culturally whether or not we value even ugly speech because ugly speech is the point of valuing speech. You have to protect it all. Nobody is needed to protect the consensus. Nobody is needed to protect the popular opinions. Yeah, it's not freedom of some speech. It's not freedom of popular speech. Right. It's freedom of all speech. Of all speech. Yeah. And don't empower the offended to shut down the ugly speech. Honestly, that's what I'm telling you. Let it let it merit out on its own. Let it let it live or die on its own. I have a uh I have a cup confession. Constrained guy on Twitter says, I'm a forty two year old father of two and I'm addicted to the soap opera general hospital. Is that still on? I don't know. You, you know, watch, I've never seen a soap opera. Is he watching that on DVD? <laughs> I've never seen it. Well, you're a... Um, Which would make it worse. You're a New York City man about town who's never been to Ohio or had cup of soup. Do you ever watch soap operas? Negative. Negative. I don't. Because they're, ben- they're beneath you, right? They're beneath Because you're not real America. <laughs> you're not real America. You're New York City, Upper West Side America. Oh, my God. Don't do this to me. You did it to yourself, my friend. You did it to yourself. I got a tweet. From, and I'm going to pull this off. Watch this. Quote Rama who said, wow, if this was TV, someone would be saying, I can't believe Joel Osteen's been cussing so much. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for never. joining us this morning on Kane and Cup. We've enjoyed having you. Tweet us at Will Kane and at SE Cup. Stay tuned for Chris Salcedo next on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Kane and Cup. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.